word of prayer. Father, again, we're thankful that you have provided for our salvation through the person and atonement of the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that the Holy Spirit has come to this earth at Pentecost, has remained here, occupying the local churches and filling individual believers. We ask that the one who wrote the scriptures would also help teach us tonight. For it's in the name of the Lord Jesus that we ask this. Amen. And if you'll turn in the notes to uh, page 47, uh, we'll go on where we left off uh, last time. And you remember we are dealing with the... Uh, with the uh, giving of the life, the human life, through the eternal life uh, that comes from the Lord Jesus Christ. And um, if I can get this things wrong here. Okay. And you remember we went over the life of Christ through the doctrine of kenosis and impeccability. Uh, and we made the two points that kenosis is actually a, it's just the doctrine of uh, Philippians uh, and impeccability is the fact of the sinlessness of Jesus Christ and then we went on to say that uh, in our events that we've been working on for a number of <laughs> I guess a year or so we've been talking about the fact that Christ ascended so we have the ascension and the ascension of, of Jesus places him at the Father's right hand, which is the first time in history that a member of the human race has occupied uh, and sat, been able to see, sit at the right hand of the Father because Jesus Christ was fully qualified to ascend to this position. And we call that the ascension and session. Then the next event that we looked at is Pentecost because Pentecost followed that and when Jesus Christ went to the Father's right hand and says being exalted at the right hand of God having received the promise of the Father which is the Holy Spirit uh, he has poured this out which you now see and hear it's in Acts 2, 32, 33 so he's poured this out which is the coming of the Holy Spirit to earth now, the Holy Spirit is omniscient, so let's think about something here right away and go back to the, the basic basics. <clears throat> God is sovereign. God is righteous. God is just. God is loving. He is uh, omniscient. He is omnipresent, omnipotent, uh, immutable, and eternal. And, of course, a number of other attributes. But the point is that if God is omnipresent, <clears throat> and the Holy Spirit is God, in what sense then did he come to earth? Well, he came to earth uh, in the sense that his primary site of operations is located on earth in a way it wasn't before Pentecost. Now, maybe you can make an analogy of imagine a very powerful man in a corporation 
uh, the, the owner, the CEO, or something is a private thing. It's not a corporate. It's not a public corporation. So it's a private firm, and he owns it all. You could say his ownership is on every desk, every room, the parking lot, the building. But he has his desk area where he does his work, and that's his office. Well, in the same way, the Holy Spirit, who is omnipresent, who is everywhere, always was everywhere, always was on earth, moves his desk, so to speak, or his center of operations to the earth. And that's what goes on here at Pentecost. So we've been working with this, and out of this uh, act come at least, uh, we, we said four things. Actually, I've enlarged it so that if you look at, on page, um, <coughs> excuse me, on page 46, previous one, the top paragraph, um, the last sentence in the top paragraph, it says, now we will look at four doctrines about our relationship to Jesus Christ through the post-Pentecostal work of the Holy Spirit. should be six. We're going to go through six, six doctrines. Um, and I'm doing that because it's really necessary to see the work that the Holy Spirit does so we don't get caught up in counterfeit things that may be popular but aren't really justified in the Word of God. So that's why we're going through the work of the Holy Spirit. When we get into the next chapter and we deal with the next event, which is the separation of the church from Israel, uh, we're going to deal with six things that Jesus Christ does, and we're going to deal with six things of the Father. So when we get done, we'll have 18 different things that describe our status as believers in this dispensation. So we have 18 different things. And when it says count your blessings one by one, now at least you can count to 18. Because we'll go through these. They're all of them expounded in the scriptures. Many more. This is just a sampling. But at least it gives you something to go back to. So the way to remember this is just remember for now, we're just going to deal with four. And the easy thing to do is remember RIBS, R-I-B-S. And the first, word, the first letter, R, stands for regeneration. And on page 46, that's the doctrine, regeneration. And what does it mean? Uh, it means the life that is given. It means that Jesus Christ regenerates the uh, person at the point of belief. And this regeneration, here's the person, and before they become a Christian, uh, we have the flesh, we have the sin nature, you can tie those two together, uh, we have a body that's cursed, uh, and we have a spirit that is dead, dead in spirit. doesn't mean it doesn't exist, but it means that it just doesn't function the right way. Now, at the point of regeneration, what happens is that in a miraculous way, the Holy Spirit recreates the human spirit in some form or fashion. And so the image in your mind that you want to have for regeneration, the image, is Genesis 1. It's creation. Just like God made the light shine in darkness there in the first day, if you can think of that imagery, it'll help you visualize what regeneration is. 
<coughs> now, regeneration is remarkable in a number of respects in that it gives a quality of life. Um, it, it's something that depends upon Genesis 1 kinds. Remember when we were talking about Genesis 1, he made everything to reproduce after its kind. And we said back in Genesis 1, this is not an optional interpretation there. Because if you wind up not affirming solidly that when God created, he created this, he created this, he created this, and not something that transitions and ooches around, like in the theory of evolution, where you have a transmutation of the species. In the New Testament, there are two species in the human race. Two, not one. Spiritually, there are those in Adam, and then there are those in the second. So Adam one and Adam two. And no one can be part of Adam two unless a regenerate. The regeneration is the recreation of the human spirit utilizing in some connection the life of Jesus Christ. So it's a linkage that happens here, and it couldn't have happened until Jesus Christ finished his earthly ministry, ascended and seated at the Father's right hand. And then this begins regeneration. All right, then the life that is given, as we've said, at point of regeneration, if it's Christ's life, then it's impeccable. And so that's why we have these strange passages in the Bible that, and this class is not a ex class in exegesis, but on page 48, that's what I've been trying to deal there with whether you deal with 1 John 3, whether it's Romans chapter 7, whether it's Galatians 2.20, all of those passages are very, very difficult verses to handle because it's easy to infer that what they're saying is perfectionism. And it's not what's being taught. What's being taught is that the regenerate nature comes from Jesus. And the regenerate nature is sinless sinlessly perfect. I mean, what other conclusion could we come to? That the eternal life of Jesus that is recreated in our souls is sinful? So that's why, you see, you can't just kiss off these verses. They're there, they demand study, and they demand explanation. Okay, so in the middle of page 48, um, I got to have a quote there from Professor Hodgers who for many years taught New Testament Greek at Dallas Seminary. And I think this is a very good comment. And if you'll follow with me, we'll go through this just one more time. Here the this is He's talking about Romans 7, because Romans 7 is parallel to 1 John 3. In Romans 7, you remember, Paul says that it is no longer I that sin, but sin that dwells in me. Now, that's a very difficult verse to handle, frankly. If you think about it, I don't sin, but it's sin that dwells in me. See, there's a, there's a complexity to the human soul that we probably don't fully appreciate. And the passages like this stress this, this nature of the soul. So, Hodges points out, quote, Here the apostle achieves a self-perspective, and I think that's the easiest way of handling this. It is a perspective, a way of looking. He achieves a self-perspective in which he can at once admit that he sins, and yet still say that it is no longer I that do it. His true self, I myself, verse 25, 
serves God's law even while he confesses that with the flesh he serves the law of sin. So see, there's a, there's a bifurcation inside of him. Now, the next paragraph, very important for later on, and uh, which, if we have time, we'll get into. But th this is a good insight. It is of great importance that this form of self-analysis precedes, precedes, precedes the solution to his problem that is given in Romans chapter 8. And this is the important sentence. To view sin as intrinsically foreign to what we are as regenerate people in Christ is to take the first step towards spiritual victory over it. That it is now foreign to us by virtue of regeneration. In other words, because the human spirit has been created, because at the moment we trust in Christ, we are in Adam 2, transferred from Adam 1 to Adam 2, that means now with this regenerate nature, the flesh doesn't belong to that. And it's to be distinguished. It's not part of the core of our being any longer. Not because we've done anything. It's only because Jesus Christ has created anew this human spirit. And it's also something that's done, not only is there two species here, but it's done instantaneously. Remember we said the imagery of Genesis 1? In the imagery of Genesis 1, how long does it take God to speak the universe into existence? Psalm 33 tells us. He spoke and it stood fast. So, it's an instantaneous thing that happens. Now, there may be months, years of the Holy Spirit working in our hearts to bring us to that point when we trust in Christ. But that the moment that that regeneration occurs, it's a split second, and it happens. And it's a work that is a miracle. And today, people say, oh, well, no miracles. Every time someone's regenerated, it's a miracle. It's a creation miracle that's in instantaneous and recapitulates on a far more grand scale than anything in Genesis 1. So, so that's, that's important about regeneration, okay? All right, now we're going to go on and uh, in page 49, I've got the, uh, the sequence there. Uh, and I just want to go over that sequence a little bit. And if you'll turn in your Bibles to John chapter 17, um, verse 3. As we're going to finish up regeneration, move on. Okay. In John seventeen three. Here's the definition, or here's a description, of eternal life. This is eternal life, that they may know Thee, addressed to the Father, they may know Thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom Thou hast sent. Now, if eternal life is defined as knowing, and the knowing here is, is a relationship-type knowing, if that's the case, then it's, it's, it's arguing that knowing associated with eternal life is, 
is one of the manifestations of regeneration. In other words, why does God regenerate? He regenerates that we may know the Father and know the Son. It seems that it's essential to that relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Meaning that no human religion, no set of religious works, church membership, baptism, all the other nine things that people quote about got to do this, got to do that, got to repent, got to do this, and be a good boy and make promises and dedicate your life and all the rest of the stuff, which is fruit maybe, not arguing that, but that's not regeneration. Regeneration is a miraculous work the Holy Spirit does, and that is what opens up the relationship with Jesus Christ. It's not established because of our good works. It's not because we're good boys and girls. It's only because of regeneration that that happens. And that's why we have to be thankful. Whatever we have that's worthwhile has been given to us by the Lord Jesus, through the Lord Jesus Christ. Now on page 49, what we tried to do there is tie chapter 1 and chapter 2 together. Remember we said there are two events that we've studied so far. The Ascension and Pentecost. And the diagram is just simply pointing this out. The ascended Lord Jesus Christ has proven righteousness. What do I mean by proven righteousness? He lived a perfect life under trial, under pressure. And he succeeded in obeying the Father at every point. Never was there a disobedient act. So he vanquished satanic temptation completely and perfectly. So it's proven righteousness. So he ascends to heaven, and that is the chapter 1, the heavenly origin of the church. See, we're dealing with the origin of the church this year, and the, the destiny of the church. So the first line gives you the heavenly source of the origin of the church. The church originated with the ascension and session of Christ insofar as heaven is concerned. Now, on earth, from heaven, the Lord Jesus Christ sends the Holy Spirit to regenerate. And that's the earthly origin of the church. We'll press that point a little further as we go on. And that yields church-age believers who possess the eternal life of Jesus Christ. Notice in diagram figure 3 that that couldn't have happened in the Old Testament. Because in the Old Testament, the Lord Jesus Christ wasn't risen. There was no proven righteousness. Now, were there believers in the Old Testament? Of course there were believers in the Old Testament. Were they saved by faith? Of course they were saved by faith. Was the object of their faith uh, the promises of God? Of course they were. Were they saved basically the same way? Yes, they were saved the same way. Well, then what's different? What's different is their relationship with God is different than the relationship with believers in this dispensation. And clearly, we are related by regeneration by His Holy Spirit sent from an ascended Christ, which is, can't be true of Abraham, David, and the others. They lived anticipating that. Maybe they were conscious of it. Maybe they weren't. Whatever salvation blessings they enjoyed were based on an anticipation of the finished work of Christ. It was Christ-centered in the Old Testament that way. But the details of the relationship are unique to the church age. And under figure three, if you'll note, follow the text there, 
just, uh, just above figure three, the sentence starts, this side of eternity, two dominions now exist. The old dominion, given to first Adam at creation, but lost to Satan at the fall, and the new dominion, given to the second Adam at his ascension and session. The new nature thus forms part of the new universe, which has already begun in the person of the resurrected, ascended, and seated Christ. As such, eternal life means for the church-age believer that he knows God in Christ as the final step of progressive revelation about God's character. Now, yes, there's going to be more things revealed about God in the future, about his plans, about his detail. But we have come to a crux in history with Pentecost because now the world knows that sin has been paid for. No matter what all the glorious things that God has yet to reveal, they will be add-ons to this fundamental truth that Jesus Christ succeeded in securing salvation, that Jesus Christ succeeded in being a perfect human being. And as such, he becomes the author of this new humanity through regeneration. One other thing to notice about figure three, and one reason why I put it there, is you notice there's a, a sequence from the Son to the Holy Spirit. Remember we said in the Doctrine of the Trinity, it's the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The Son was begotten of the Father. The theologians use the word begotten. It doesn't mean he, he started at a point in time, and well, there was a time when the Son wasn't there, and then he got begotten, and then he was there. That's not what they mean. The word begotten, when dealing with the Trinity, is the idea of derivation in the sense that um, you have electricity going into the filament of a bulb and you have light coming out of the bulb. It's instantaneous, it's simultaneous, but in a logical sense, the light follows from the electricity going into the filament. Well, the Son, in that sense, is derivative of the Father. And the Holy Spirit is derivative of the Son. And you observe this sequence, and we'll see this several times, that the intra-triune sequence is always there from Father to Son to Holy Spirit. Now, if you'll turn the page, page 50, we're going to start a new thing tonight. We're going to leave regeneration, and we're going to move to indwelling. I in ribs. If the image of regeneration is Genesis 1, creation, the image of indwelling is that of a temple. So if you turn to 1 Kings chapter 8, when Solomon made the temple, we'll just note some things to get our picture right. Solomon uh, built this building and he brought the ark in and chapter 8 is the story about what happened uh, when, when the ark was placed in the, in the temple. Verse 9. There was nothing in the ark except the two tablets of stone which Moses put there in Horeb where the Lord made a covenant with the sons of Israel and they came out of the land of Egypt. And it came to pass when the priests 
came from the holy place that the cloud filled the house of the Lord. Now, what do you mean cloud filled the house of the Lord? What cloud? The cloud that goes back to what event? Where was the cloud most previous to this? When was the cloud most manifest in the history of Israel? At the Exodus. Remember? Tabernacle, cloud, everywhere the pillar of fire went, they went. It was a physical thing. It was a physical manifestation of the presence of God. But it says here, after Solomon built the building, and they brought the ark into the building, according to verse 11, the glory filled the house. So now the temple is filled with the indwelling of God. Then Solomon said, The Lord has said he will dwell in a thick cloud. I have surely built thee a lofty house, a place for thy dwelling forever. And the dwelling is in the, temp in the temple. And it goes on to describe this. And um, In verse 22, if you go, drop down further in this prayer of Solomon's, uh, he stood before the altar of the Lord in the presence of all the assembly, spread out his hands toward heaven. Now watch this. This is the wisest man who ever lived. Solomon had an intellect that was in a super genius level. He was greater than Leonardo da Vinci. He was a renaissance man in everything. And here he's describing the nature of God himself. And he's dealing with the same problem I introduced the lesson with tonight. How can you say God is localized at a point in space when he is an omnipresent God, present at every point in space. And so we want to look at this just a bit to get feed our imagination, our mind's eye, to get set up with a proper biblical categories to understand his dwelling. So, he says in verse 22, so he stood before the altar and he said, O Lord, the God of Israel, there's no God like thee in heaven above or on earth beneath who are keeping covenant and showing loving kindness to thy servants who walk before thee with all their heart who has kept thy servant my father David that which he has promised him what covenant is he referring to remember biblical covenants what's one biblical covenant Sinaitic covenant Abrahamic covenant before that one after that one Abrahamic Sinaitic and what was the Davidic covenant remember what the Davidic covenant promised the dynasty of David would endure forever on the throne of Israel. So, verse 24, he's talking about the dynasty promise. I'm not talking about something abstract, he's talking about something that can be felt, touched, measured, and verified. Thou hast spoken by thy mouth and hast filled it with thy hands this day, and thou therefore, Lord, the God of Israel, keep with thy servant David, my father, that which you have promised him, saying, You shall not lack a man to sit on the throne of Israel. Verse 27. Now Solomon deals with a conceptual issue of God indwelling a temple. But will God indeed dwell on earth? Behold, heaven in the highest heaven cannot contain thee, how much less this house which I have built. Yet, now watch what he does. Remember I said he used the illustration of the CEO and the desk? That's the center of his operations. All right, look at verse 28. Yet... Have regard to the prayer of thy servant and to his supplication, O Lord my God, to listen to the cry and to the prayer which thy servants praise before thee today, that thine eyes may be open toward this house night and day, toward the place of which thou hast said, My name shall be there. 
to listen to the prayer which thy servant shall pray toward this place. And listen to the supplication of thy servant and of thy people, Israel, when they pray toward this place. Hear thou in heaven thy dwelling place, hear and forgive. Now see, he clearly knows, verse 30, he's clearly acknowledging that even though the Shekinah glory is dwelling in the house, verse 11, even though God in one sense indwells the temple, he, he hasn't denied thereby God's omnipresence, nor has he denied that the real throne is still in heaven. So there's a little bit of a tension here in, when we come to this concept of indwelling. And so let's work this out a little bit. Indwelling. Indwelling does not mean canceling omnipresence. doesn't mean that that attribute goes away. It doesn't mean that God doesn't have a special place uh, he doesn't nick the, the special place in heaven. Not denying that either. Well, if it's not denying those two things, what is it affirming? Well, one of the things it's affirming in verse 11, verse 12, that some part of God's glory is localized in the temple. So positively, it's affirming that there's a location of uh, a location of a meeting place, so to speak, between man and God. Now, of course, God can meet us anywhere, but there's a specialty about whatever the indwelling temple is about. So, and that's the, the Old Testament temple. Now, if you come over page 50, we've looked at some of the, the, that verse. There's a bunch of other verses there if you want to look them up. Uh, if you'll follow with me, after the first three or four lines on the top of page 50, it says, Before the Solomonic Temple, of course, God's glory indwelled the tabernacle. Exodus 40 is the place where you can see where that indwelling happened. God's indwelling the tabernacle and later the temple enabled communication between himself and Israel. Now, how did it, how, if it's communication, because remember, Psalm is talking about prayer, the location of the meeting place. What do we mean by communication and meeting place? Okay, next sentence. It was the place where blood atonement occurred. Right? Remember what they did at the temple? What did they do with the sacrifices? They sacrificed them there. That was the location of sacrifice. It was where washing was performed. Now, all of these have a little connotation to them. And we're going to see later, and I'll, I'll tip you off tonight to this sentence. So see the sentence where we're going through now? If you'll underline blood atonement, that's number one. The temple was the place where blood atonement occurred. Now, if you think about it, what does the Epistle Hebrews say of us about a filthy conscience is cleansed by the blood of Christ? Where does that happen? The blood is applied, and the blood was sacrificed outside of Jerusalem on the cross, 
but the effect of that is applied inside our souls where this indwelling happens. So in a sense, there's something that corresponds to that atoning work internally. Now, it's the second clause in the sentence. Where washing was performed, before someone could come into the temple, they had to wash. Well, we're going to find out First John, we have to confess our sins. Jesus said, whoever does not uh, take a bath, you know, is not part of me. And Peter. So the washing occurs with our confession, which occurs in our soul. Where incense burned. Incense is a picture, third thing is a picture of prayer. And where does that happen? It happens at the meeting place with God. And where is the meeting place with God in the church age? It's inside the, where regeneration has happened. And where his light is shown. Remember his light shown in the temple? Where does illumination to the word of God happen? In the human heart. So the four functions that you see in that sentence, the blood atonement is applied or, or cursed, Washing is performed, incense is burned, and his light is shown. Those are all part of this meeting place between God and man. Now, in the new universe, when God dwells, there's going to be a river coming out from the throne, Revelation 21, and that's a picture of Eden. Now, in Eden, they didn't need a temple per se before the fall, didn't need washing, didn't need blood atonement, but they did need to meet with God and where they meet with God, Garden of Eden. So there's always a localized meeting place, whether it's Eden, whether it's an altar, whether it's the tabernacle, whether it's the temple, and now the church age, after the temple's destroyed, where's the meeting place with God? In this age, the meeting place between God and man is in the regenerate nature. It's his own temple. Solomon built the temple, Holy Spirit indwelt it. Jesus Christ today regenerates and what comes to re indwell the regenerate nature? The Holy Spirit. So regeneration provides the, the faculty or the entity inside of us and then the Holy Spirit indwells that. Okay, in the last sentence in the middle paragraph on page 50, that's what we mean when we say the proper relationship between the two may be expressed by saying that regeneration provides the vessel for the indwelling Spirit of God, just as Solomon supplied the temple that was later indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Now, now comes a little clarification, because we've clearly got something going here that doesn't quite match the Old Testament. And this last sentence, uh, this last paragraph deals with that. So if you'll follow me again, we'll look at some of the verses, but just follow the text, and we'll go to those verses in a minute. The indwelling of the Spirit after Pentecost differs from his indwelling during the age of Israel. Just like regeneration had a corresponding thing, you know, circumcision of the heart, which we'll get into in a minute. Table 5 lists the dispensational distinctions observed in the biblical record. So if you turn to page 51, you'll see a little chart. Charts divided in half. On the left side of the chart, what do you see? You see the pre-Pentecostal indwelling. On the right side of the chart, what do you see? Post-Pentecostal indwelling. So you have then a changeover that occurs. Here's Pentecost. 
This is pre-Pentecost. This is post-Pentecost. So things here, things here, but they're different. What were they different? I summarized some of them. Notice the first row in table five. What was the focus of the indwelling in the Old Testament? The focus was to further the purpose of God for the nation Israel. That was the purpose of the indwelling. To further the purpose of God for the nation Israel. And we'll give illustrations of that in a moment. Go to the right side of the table. What is the purpose of the indwelling Holy Spirit on this side of Pentecost? It says, a life-centered ministry to make eternal fellowship with God a present reality. That's what the Holy Spirit's here for. So, the Holy Spirit now is more life-centered on individual believers Whereas in the Old Testament, he was centered in individuals. He, he worked with individuals, but the goal was the nation Israel. We could say also, you might add to that right side there, it's, it's really to build a church in the body of Christ. Okay, let's go to the second row on table five. The indwelling in the Old Testament was limited to only some believers. And there are even passages that suggest that he could have indwelt unbelievers. Holy Spirit worked through an ass. Balaam's. Indwell an animal. So the Holy Spirit has freedom to do these kind of odd things. But generally speaking, it was only limited to some believers. It was not universal. Go to the right side, second row on the table five says it's universal for all and only believers. Now I'm going to take you to Romans 8 9. I want to make this point. Romans chapter 8 verse 9. In the 20th century, there's been some sloppy theology about this. And you might have heard some radio preachers get up or somebody say, oops, and waving hands and yelling and going on saying, there's a real man of God. The Holy Spirit indwells him. Like the Holy Spirit doesn't indwell every Christian. Romans chapter 8, verse 9. However, you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. But notice, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. So indwelling is coterminous with salvation. You don't have somebody saved without the indwelling Holy Spirit. It's not salvation and then we do 152 different good works and then we get to earn the indwelling. The indwelling is there from the beginning of the Christian's life. Okay, so... So it's important to see that that's different. In the New Testament, this side of Pentecost is universal. The other side of Pentecost, it was limited. Okay? Next row, table five. It was temporary. It could have been removed. The Holy Spirit could remove himself from this. Turn to Psalm 51.11. And here's a prayer. And oftentimes, because the liturgy, and I, I 
used to attend years ago, a liturgical church. And there's nothing wrong with liturgy as long as the liturgy is designed. A lot of the liturgies are designed with far more theology in them than the present churches who are liturgical preach in the pulpits. Uh, the uh, liturgy beats the sermons. Um, Psalm 51.11 David in his penitential psalm, the crisis while he was king, Holy Spirit indwelt him as king, and in verse 11, part of his confession is this, do not cast me away from thy presence and do not take thy Holy Spirit from me. And you've, if you've been to a liturgical church, you've probably seen that. But if you notice, it's poetry and it's parallelism. The first part of verse 11 is parallel to the second part of verse 11. So before we go too far, let's note the parallel. What do we say the image of indwelling is? Temple. What's the purpose of the temple? Communication. What is verse 11 saying? Do not cast me away from thy presence. And then simultaneously and, and coterminously with that, and don't take your Holy Spirit from me. So what David is praying, that when God punishes him, chastens him for his sin, that included in the chastening not be a taking away of the Holy Spirit. But it meant more than just from thy presence. Because we know in the context of 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel, what did it mean when it said the Spirit came upon Saul and the Spirit left Saul and came upon David? What was happening politically with this? In other words, the indwelling of the king in the Old Testament signified the dynastic right of his, of his family. So, in effect, what David's praying in verse 11 is also that his dynasty continue. That he not be like Saul, where the Holy Spirit did leave Saul. David says, please don't take the Holy Spirit from me. Not only because of your presence, but because of the preservation of my family sitting on this throne. And I point out that flavor. We don't have time to develop it, but I assured you it's there in First and Second Samuel. Um, because this shows you that in the Old Testament, indwelling had the special connotations. And one of the connotations it had with regard to David was dynastic succession. But it was temporary. Obviously, David thought it was temporary because he's praying that it not be taken away. Now, if you turn to Ephesians 4, verse 30, in the New Testament. We're going to get into another doctrine, S, on sealing, but we'll anticipate a little bit. In Ephesians 4, 30, talking in the New Testament, this side of Pentecost, do not grieve the Holy Spirit by whom you are sealed for the day of redemption. So, not only is the Holy Spirit universal to every believer, the Holy Spirit is a seal. He never leaves until the day of redemption. So he can't leave and it's permanent. So the other contrast between pre- and post-Pentecost is on one side it was temporary and the other side it's permanent. Okay? Fourth row. 
on table five. It could be asked for. One could make the indwelling of the Holy Spirit a petition to God. In Luke 11:13, it is. How much more will the Father give the Holy Spirit to them who ask Him? And people will, some of you Christians will go ahead and pray that. What's the problem? Luke 11 occurs before or after Pentecost? Before Pentecost. Pentecost hasn't come in Luke. So you've got to read the Gospels as pre-Pentecost. And this is the life of the Holy Spirit under the Old Testament dispensation that hadn't finished yet when the four Gospels are recording history. After Pentecost comes and after the church forms, now there's no New Testament command for indwelling whatsoever in the entire New Testament. It's gone. Reason? Because you don't have to ask for it. It's part comes with regeneration, part of this ribs thing. Now, as an example of the ministry of the Holy Spirit, if you look up, uh, in the interest of time, we, I list all the verses there so you can check me if you want. The second paragraph on page 51, if you'll go up there a moment, I want to show you some instances of how the Holy Spirit worked in the age of Israel. In pre-Pentecostal times, Israel consisted of a mixed multitude of believers and unbelievers. The kind of indwelling which occurred, therefore, was primarily to aid the mixed nation in fulfilling its historic calling, rather than to bring everyone into immediate individual eternal fellowship with God. Builders of the tabernacle and the temple were indwelt for natural, underline the word, natural skills, to produce those structures. What was one of the skills they had? Carpentry. Carpenters were gifted by the Holy Spirit so that the temple would be made right. See what the kind of difference is there? Those are natural skills that were supernaturally given to craftsmen in order that this physical temple and the tabernacle be made correctly. Next sentence, Israel's judges were indwelt at times for special acts of political and military deliverance. Whole series there in the book of Judges. Spirit came upon so-and-so. What does that mean? What was so-and-so doing when the Spirit of God came upon him? The Spirit would come upon prophet. And his ass was indwelt. So, that's the kind of ministry. So, if you, if you start listing the last four lines in that paragraph, carpentry, that was part of the object of the Holy Spirit, carpentry, political leadership, battlefield skills in military science, and making a donkey talk. That was what the Holy Spirit indwelt was, was all about doing that. Okay. And then I, I just summarized already about David and the dynastic thing. So therefore, there's a difference. And indwelling in the New Testament means something other than what it meant in the Old Testament. So if you come over to page 52, you 
you'll see that the Holy Spirit indwells, that's Ephesians 4.30, the Holy Spirit now indwells permanently, not temporarily. No Christian who knows the doctrine of indwelling can ever pray the prayer of David in Psalm 51 or the disciples' prayer in Luke 11. That doesn't mean you can't pray prayers that are very analogous to that. Of course we can confess our sin. Of course we can ask God for blessings. But one of the blessings we don't have to ask for this side of Pentecost is the indwelling Holy Spirit because he's already here. As we have seen, God indwells temples. Now, let's turn to 1 Corinthians 3, because Paul uses this temple imagery, again, with, associated with indwelling. So, here's another New Testament epistle, and here's a verse that talks about the indwelling. He mentions it, the temple analogy, two ways. So, we're down here now with the temple... New Testament temple. One, two. Now we're going to look at the two ways Paul uses the temple imagery. The first time he uses it is 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 16. Okay, if you look there, what does he say? Do you not know that you are a temple of God and the Holy Spirit dwells in you? Now, was Corinth a particularly advanced, highly spiritual church? Don't think so. I mean, these people couldn't get resurrection straight. They were getting drunk in communion. They were so out of it that God had to discipline some of them by killing them after communion service. So this is not a highly spiritual church. And yet he has the audacity to make a claim that... Frankly, a lot of evangelical Christians get upset with Paul saying this. How can you call such a carnal church a place where God dwells? I don't think you're very perceptive. Don't think you've got the gift of discernment. Well, what does the text say? He's not talking to the Galatians here. He's talking to the Corinthians. And he says, you, plural, a temple. Oh, now what does temple mean? Meaning number one, in 1 Corinthians 3, it equals the local church. You all are a temple. Is this talking about a building? No. Building is, is the place where the temple meets. But the temple isn't the building. We don't walk into the house of God. The church is the house of God. If we have 44 people who are believers in one place, that's a 44-brick temple right there. So here's a case where Paul is saying, and then he says, by the way, verse 17, if any man destroy the temple of God, God will destroy him, for the temple of God is holy, and that is what you are. What does he mean, destroy the temple? Well, if you look back up in verse 10, 11, 12, 13, he's talking about works of the flesh. Things that are just useless as far as the temple is concerned. And he says these can be deleterious, these can be uh, offensive, these can undermine the church. He says if any man destroy the temple of God, God's going to destroy him. God's going to protect his church. You know, it was in, uh, I think, World Magazine the last issue that just came 
fascinating observation about a little unknown event that happened in Afghanistan. As you know, on the TV and the radio now, they're concerned with trying to rebuild this mess. And one of the magnets to try to get all these tribes together is the king that had abdicated years and years ago. And they want to bring the king back so they can get the Pushtuns and the Uzbeks and all the other tribes together and say, hey, guys, can you agree at least that this is a good man to sign a hold together here at the center? Well, what the newspapers haven't told us is the circumstances under which he abdicated. Back many, many years ago, before this man abdicated as king, there was a missionary by the name of Mr. Wilson. And Mr. Wilson led a lot of Afghan people to Jesus Christ, along with some uh, State Department people and so on in Kabul. And so they had to have a church. They, were, they wanted a church started. Well, back then even, there was the general Muslim population, and then there were a few of these fanatics, the people are now the Taliban. And they hated the Christians. So the poor Afghans that converted out of Islam, they had a real problem. And they had to meet kind of surreptitiously along with the Christians who happened to be there with our consulate in, in Kabul. So they formed a church and Mr. Wilson, and this thing started spreading. Afghans really in Kabul started becoming Christians. Well, this really frosted the Muslims. They had to do something about it. Well, they kept refusing. When, when Wilson went out and said, hey, can we build a church? See, the Muslims can build mosques in America, but Christians can't build church buildings in Islamic lands. See, this is the other side of this little coin. Sword only cuts one way. Um, and so they were not allowed to build a church. Well, Wilson realized that at the time Eisenhower was president. This is a year back in the 50s. Eisenhower was president, and Eisenhower, right down the street here, had, had um, been just dedicated the first mosque in D.C. I mean, they, you know, it was a ceremonial thing. Ha ha, we're free in America and give everybody rights. And so Eisenhower put in his, made the proper political clucking noises for this ceremony thing. And so Wilson heard about it and he says, oh, Eisenhower's going to come over and visit the king. So he talked to Eisenhower. He somehow got word to Eisenhower's pastor would you kind of ask the president when he comes over to Kabul, would you kind of have him put, lean on the king here a little bit and say, hey, you know, we let a mosque be built in D.C., how about you guys letting a church building be built in Kabul? Oh, good idea, said Eisenhower. So Eisenhower goes over there in the 50s and he talks to the king and says, you know, there's Christians in here and they kind of like a church building where they can meet. Got a problem with that? And the guy said, no, we'll go ahead. The king agreed to do it. So they built the church building. Three years later, by this time, the Muslim fanatics are really ticked that this thing is growing. Got to stop this. Can't have this in the Muslim land. So they decide to compel the king to agree to destroy the building. So, and by the way, they hear there's going to be an underground church developing around this building. So they come in with bulldozers, knock the building down, and start digging 12, inch, 12 feet down because they think there's an underground church. I mean, these people are kind of slow. Um, but they go in and they destroy this thing. And what do the Christians do? Interesting lesson. 
The Christians, you know, obviously can't be in the building when they're being destroyed. So the Christians all back out, form a ring around the building, bow in prayer. And between their prayers, they even offer tea and water and cookies to the soldiers that are guarding the bulldozers that are destroying the church. But all the time they're praying. Within hours, the time they started praying, the king was overthrown. What does it say? It says here, if any man destroys the temple of God, God will destroy him. Mess around with the church, and you may be successful for a while, but you're going to be taken out of history. And I think you're going to see this right now because two of the great regimes that have crushed the Christians in the Middle East, one of them is Saudi Arabia, and the other one is Iraq and Iran. Let's watch what happened to those governments. As long as there's Christians praying. These were Christians who took a prayerful stand, nonviolent, didn't fight them. The weapons of our warfare are not carnal, spiritual. But within hours, those prayers were answered, and that, that regime fell. And the question is, maybe Humpty Dumpty fell, and they can't bring all the pieces back together again because of a spiritual problem. See? So we don't know this. See, history's loaded with all these little spiritual background stories, which when we get to heaven someday, it's going to be fascinating to have God take us all through the acts of history that we learned in high school, and we learned in college, and we learned all about the dates, and the angels probably who are going to give us, be our history teacher, are going to say, hey, you want to know what really happened in this year, this year, this year, this year? You want to know what really happened in 1776? You want to know what really happened in World War I? You want us to pull off the little veil so you can see what was going on? What a fascinating story that'll be. Talk about the other dimension to history. Well, Paul, in 1 Corinthians 3, is talking about the church as the temple. And we want to conclude by the second meaning of the word temple here. If you turn to 1 Corinthians 6.19. Now he's talking about the individual. Verse 19, talking about the individual body. I'm not talking about the body of the church. Verse 19, talking about the individual body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you. And there he's talking about an individual believer. Individual believer. Now embedded in all that is that's why the body, even though it's cursed, even though it's on its way out through death process, the body is considered to be important in the Bible. We're not just a spirit. We're also a body. And there's a certain respect for the body that is implicit in looking at it as a temple. You know, you, you, you clean it. You, you take care of it. Somebody cleans the temple. And, and so there's a, there's a certain theology which we won't have time to go into, but as far as taking care of yourself health-wise and otherwise, it's, it's, it's not unspiritual to do that. Because this is part of the temple. This is a temple of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit thinks enough of the body to be using it for his purposes. So maybe we ought to pay a little more attention sometimes than we do. Okay. If you will um, 
conclude by looking at, follow me in the rest of this, these two paragraphs on page 52. I'll finish up this section on indwelling so we can get to baptism next time. As we have seen, God indwells temples. It's no accident. Paul refers to the local body of believers and individual Christians' physical body as a temple. In this age, the house of God does not refer to a church building. It refers to the group of believers who meet in such a building wherever the location is on earth. It even includes those who have died in Christ and are now in heaven. There's a footnote there if you want to chase that one down. You look up that text. In the majority reading, the tabernacle in heaven that is blasphemed in the middle of the tribulation is called those who dwell in heaven, comma, the tabernacle. One of, I think, a strong evidence for the rapture of the church prior to the end of the tribulation. As the temple of God in this age, the church is where God meets man, where he reveals himself and where reconciliation occurs. It is also the only place where God meets man for fellowship. The doctrine of indwelling with its temple imagery offends all advocates of religious pluralism by its dogmatic exclusivity, meaning where is the center of operations today? Believers. Believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. Why? Because we're so good people? No. That's just the way God has designed this age. The only place he meets. But you say, well, wait a minute. Can't a hot and tot meet somebody? Yeah. But how does the person led to Christ today? Anywhere. By a message. Where did the message come from? From the temple. Came from believers. So everybody is led to Christ by contact some way with a message that is emanating from the church. Through it alone comes the message of reconciliation and the atonement of Jesus Christ. In it alone is God's illuminating hearts to his sanctifying light. So there you have an outline of the doctrine of the temple. We've dealt with the doctrine of regeneration. Next week we're going to deal with baptism. And if you'll follow that over um, on page 53, you'll see all the different uses of the word baptize, which may surprise you that there are eight different uses of the word baptize in the Bible. And five of the eight are dry, and only three are wet. And then you come to sealing on page 55. And we're going to deal on page 56 with intercession. And we're going to deal the last one, spiritual gifts, which will be a handout next week. So those are the six things. Ribs plus intercession plus spiritual gifts. Six things the Holy Spirit has done for us. So it's something to thank Him for, something to be appreciative of. Father, we thank You for our time together tonight. We thank You that You have given us these wonderful gifts, that You have seen to do these works in our hearts. We ask that you illuminate our hearts that we may be appreciative, the sons of you, that we may understand the scope of your grace and we can look at your handiwork and realize that you have given us tremendous operating assets as believers. And we become so careless, so shallow at times we forget this tremendous work that you've done on our behalf. Again, we ask that you would open our eyes to what you have already done for us in the person of Christ. In whose name we pray. Amen.
we have a few minutes here. Um, we won't stay late, but if, if any of you have any questions, our chief uh, interrogator isn't here tonight to lead. But if some of you have any questions, lead the discussion. Yes, George. Um, the, uh, the generation, uh, the way you were talking with our identity, is that the same as, as, as adoption? I think of, of uh, you know, the concept of adoption and the fact that we're taken out of this world and transported into um, his family, kind of a offer to princes type of thing. So that doesn't mean that just because we act like paupers, that makes us a pauper. We're one of the king's children acting like we were not. Is that all the same? Well, the, each one of these um, metaphors or illustrations, uh, like adoption, uh, I think uh, Dr. Chafer who was the founder of Dallas Seminary, in his systematic theology, lists 33 of them. I mean, we're just going through 18, and it seems like a lot. But things like you're mentioning, they're all accumulated metaphors, each with its own little contribution uh, to, to sharpen our sense of what's going on. And adoption is much more legal than regeneration. Regeneration is more creation. Uh, adoption looks at it from the law standpoint. And it was used in the... Um, uh, first century Roman society, that adoption meant quite a bit. And scholars have debated over whether it's adoption in the Old Testament sense or adoption in the Roman sense. And it seems that really Paul used the Roman sense. He didn't use the Jewish sense because, remember, Paul was communicating to whom? Primarily, Gentiles. And in particular, that particular adoption passage is in Romans. So why not in Rome do as the Romans do? And so he's using a Roman metaphor. And adoption was a lot more serious. I, I haven't studied a lot about the adoption, but I've studied enough of it. There's a scholar, an English legal professor, who did a book called, I um, oh, can't think of the title of the book now, um, Servants, Slaves, and Sons, or something like that. And it's a study he did, and 100 pages long, of all the intricate legal manifestations of adoption. It turns out it's a very, very rich picture of the, of the privileges that we have as Christians in the family of God. And the idea of how our utter unprivileged state that we came from in order to get into this. And so it seems like the metaphor of adoption is to cause us to be thankful for what he's done by introducing us to his family, bringing us into his home, and letting us share the assets of the family that we had no business uh, part of. Powerful metaphor. But all these are, are, you know, look at it from this point of view. Look at it from this point, because there's so many faceted on it that I mean, you can spend all eternity looking at what he has done here. And that's what I'm trying to do here is uh, we're touching this so fast and uh, I kind of apologize for going through these verses so fast. But again, as I said, this course is not one on exegesis. I'm just trying to accumulate these passages. And um, 
just regeneration and dwelling. You see all the connotations and the implications of what's going on here. Well, wait till we get to baptism. We'll see another implication. We'll get to sealing. We see another implication. The intercession, that's a fantastic thing. What the Holy Spirit does and the kind of praying he does. Um, amazing. And then spiritual gifts. And that doesn't even begin to exhaust the work that God has done for us. So it's, yes. Yeah, Dave. One thing I find sort of eye opening and fascinating that you never really hear that much about what the Holy Spirit does. It's sort of like somebody who's in the background, but now that you bring forth what's going on, it's why, you know, it's like you just don't hear much about that. Look how essential and important it's in the beginning of time. You don't even know that. Yeah. Dave has brought out a good point about how you usually don't hear much about the work of the Holy Spirit. And you know there's a reason for that too? And there's a theological reason for that. And if you turn to John 16, the Lord Jesus tells us that that's, that's probably going to be the case. And this is an interesting verse because it keeps us, it forces us back to the Trinity again. Uh, you look up John 16, verse um, 13. 13 and 14. Um, if you follow me as I read it, in verse 13 of chapter 16 of the Gospel of John, but when He, the Spirit of truth, comes, He will guide you into all the truth. Now, He's talking here to the apostles in context. And probably he's referring mostly to the generation of the New Testament text here. But, but, pay, but pay attention to what, as you read through this, look what the emphasis is on. But when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own initiative, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will disclose to you what is to come. By the way, that shows you prophecy. Holy Spirit is the one that gave all the prophetic passages to John. Verse 14, though, gets to, to, to Dave's question. He shall glorify me, for he shall take of mine and shall disclose it unto you. He's not disclosing his own things. So the Holy Spirit tends, his mission in life, in history, is to reveal the Son, the second person of the Trinity. And because he does that so efficiently and so effectively, that we tend to focus on Jesus, rightly, and then forget the fact that, well, wait a minute, you know, who's teaching us all this? It's the Holy Spirit. But, the, but yes, and, and the manifestation of the Spirit is actually a manifestation of Christ's nature. And the reason why, you know, this is important is because in the history of the 20th century, there have been people fed up, and rightfully so in many cases, with what they call dead orthodoxy. And they've drifted over into what we call charismatic theology. And in charismatic theology, the emphasis is on glorifying the Holy Spirit. And that doesn't fit these passages. The Holy Spirit did not come to, to draw attention to himself. He's, he's an eloquent example, by the way, of subordination doesn't mean inferiority of person. Holy Spirit's no less deity because he doesn't say, hey, here I am, I'm the Holy Spirit, everybody bow down to me. 
He says, bow down to Jesus. And he's a perfect servant. As God, he is a perfect servant because he receives of the Son. And he magnifies the Son. It's amazing. He just, he is, he's a model for a servant. And so when, uh, presumably when he leads us correctly and we adjust to him, that we will be servants too and we will point not to ourselves but to the Lord Jesus Christ and make him the issue, not what we are, what great people we are or aren't. But that's a good point that Dave brought out is that that is true. And thankfully we have enough scripture so we can go back to the scriptures and say, well, we recognize the Holy Spirit, gee, you, you know, he's done this, he's done that, and we can be appreciative to him for his work. It's just that if he were here to speak tonight, he'd say, just glorify Christ. Well, it's a hypothetical. Yeah, it's, it's a hypothetical. Yeah. Well, if, if the Holy Spirit were to leave us, Paul, Paul says we would not be Christ's. I mean, we'd lose our salvation and everything else. So, um, the, the, the big idea here is it's just to home in in some of the details of what it means to be a believer in the church age. That's what this is all about. Because that was the original... That's why I said... Remember I started back in last spring and I gave you that Appendix A on Reformed and Dispensational Theology and I said, we can't avoid it any longer discussing this because we're going to get face-to-face with it. Well, now you see what I mean. We're starting to see the differences between the Old Testament and the New Testament. We're not undermining the Old Testament. The Old Testament is the foundation of the New but you can't go in there and promiscuously grab hold of uh, admin, uh, warnings, passages, and so on like that that are addressed to Israel and hastily, sometimes you can bring them over as metaphors, as wisdom, but you can't go in there and hastily jerk them up and drop them over in the New Testament. You can't do that. Because one of the Ten Commandments is what? Keep the Sabbath. Now, Christians have over the centuries converted that to Sunday. But the Old Testament doesn't know about anything on Sunday. The Old Testament is Saturday. And that's Old Testament. And it still is Old Testament. You go to Israel, and on Friday night at sundown, you don't walk into some of these ultra-Orthodox places or they'll stone you. Today. Tonight. In Jerusalem. Because they don't want anybody messing around after sunset. 6 p.m. is it on Friday night and you just be good boys and girls and some of you don't eat some of them don't eat don't cook use sandwiches I guess 
uh, all day on Saturday until 6 p.m. comes around. And, okay, now it's, now it's Sunday, because Jewish days start at night, just like creation. It starts in dark, darkness and becomes light. Jewish day starts in darkness and becomes light. It's patterned after Genesis 1. So that's why they have Saturday, and that's right. So now if we say, well, Sunday's Sabbath, we've got to reanalyze things. And we understand, hey, it's okay. Sunday's the Christian day because Jesus rose from the dead and so on. There's nothing wrong with that. It's just that um, the rules that pertain to the Sabbath... I think are really nice to take a break. But they're not mandated in the church age. Where do you find the sabbatical legislation anywhere in the New Testament? Don't find it. If the law is fulfilled in Jesus Christ, then it hasn't not been fulfilled, and it hasn't not been abolished. The law held up a, a righteous standard to which Jesus submitted and proved himself. And the point there is that the Old Testament, everybody's a dispensation of some sort, because they've got to say that parts of the Old Testament law have gone. Well, I understand that, but, you, but the law is a unit. And in particular, in the New Testament, if we had time, we could go through 1 Corinthians. Paul is even citing as the, most, the law that is done away with, and he quotes the Ten Commandments, part of it. So you can't fracture the Old Testament law. There's only one covenant there. It's called the Sinaitic Covenant. Can you take a mortgage? I mean, think about it. Can you take a loan agreement that you have on your car... And, and take out paragraph 3 and leave paragraph 5 and go to the bank and say, hey, it's okay. I'm not breaking it. I don't think so. And I don't think you're going to do that to your mortgage. And I don't think you're going to do that to any other loan agreement you have. And I don't think you're going to do that to any business contract you're involved in. You're not going to fracture up a contract and say, oh, well, gee, I don't break it. What do you mean you don't break it? You just wiped out half of it. So every contract is inviolable that way. How do we in our society handle a problem like that? You renegotiate the contract, right? You, you, you sit down and agree that, okay, we'll drop paragraph two out and we'll redo the contract and sign it again. But the new contract is still a unit, isn't it? You've gone from one unit to another unit. Are there same provisions in them? Yeah. Same thing as you go from one dispensation to the next. God signs a contract here. He modifies it, signs a contract over here. No problem. Point is that if when you have a, a lease, say, for example, or, or better yet, a loan agreement. Uh, what's the loan agreement? loan agreement is that after 20 payments, 24 payments, you're done. Okay? So you pay off the loan. It's done. Now you don't send checks to the bank. Right? Because you're paid off. Well, you don't check and to the bank. Can I come up to you and say, hey, you're, you're, you're breaking that, uh, that contract. You're not sending your checks in anymore. Well, no. The contract was to cover the period of the loan. Loan's done. Contract's over. Sorry. Bye. I'm free of the contract. 
That's the point. We're free of the contract. Doesn't mean we're antinomian, that we don't have another contract. We have a New Testament. That's what he said, New Testament. And that thing is the whole set of epistles. But here's the trick, and I'll mention this later on in an appendix. If you were to take the time and a concordance and look up every imperative mood, that is, every command verb, from Acts 2 to Revelation 4, to Revelation, end of Revelation 3. Take that whole part of the text. Every verb. Boom, 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 boom. Make a database and build a set of the commands that are in there. Okay? Now do the same thing in the Mosaic Law Code over here. Then you get your two databases and compare. And notice what's missing in the New Testament. No hygienic laws. No ceremonial laws. No banking laws, no tax laws, no welfare laws. What's going on? Answer, the Old Testament was given to a nation that needed policies. The New Testament is given to believers who live in hundreds of different nations. And they're not to make that an issue. They're to make Christ the issue. Now, does that mean we can't use the Old Testament law? No. We can go back and mine it for its wisdom principles. And we can, to the extent as Christian citizens, we can campaign. When Nancy Jacobs got elected, you know one of the first things I did with Nancy? And she so appreciated it. I went and I bought Rush Dooney's book, which is a thick book like this, called The Institutes of Biblical Law. And you can look up every social function you want from the Mosaic Law Code. And I gave it to Nancy Jacobs because I said, you're going to get in debates while you're in this House of Delegates. This is when she was a delegate. And they're going to come up, they're going to hit you, and you've got to figure out, oh man, what do I do? What's a, what's a good, wise position here or there? Go back to the law code. Find out how God ruled his nation. And maybe he'll give you some insights. Some of them you can't apply, some of them you can, some of them you want to, nobody wants to do it. That's okay. But it's a source of some intellectual content to your legislative debates in the House of Delegates. So that's how you use the Old Testament and how you can use it today as a Christian citizen in this country. It's not that we're neglecting it. It's, it's that we are not saying it's mandatory for every person in the United States of America to obey the Mosaic Law Code. Remember, it was given not to the church. It was given to a nation. Okay? So we'll see more of this as we go on. So, I guess that's it for tonight.